so we're on Philippians 21, uh, our, our 21st part of Philippians. And last week we, um, you know, we kind of started on chapter four, a um, little bit of encouraging that was going on. Paul is, is, is definitely switched into sort of his pastoral, um, sort of pastoral role. And today he's going to bring us to the issue of conflict and how we deal with conflict, how we resolve conflict. And, and it's really nice to know that Paul sort of anticipated that this would come up. And so he's, he's brought uh, some, some teaching into his into chapter 4 so that he can help us deal with conflict even in the church. Um, people handle conflict all different sorts of ways, don't they? I, I bet everybody in this room is slightly different. I'm what they call an avoider. If there's conflict, I go the other way. I just don't like to confront people. It's just, it's not in my nature. I, I'm not, I'm not a, a confronter. Um, some people do it by appeasing. I'll just give them what they want and then we won't have a fight. And that's a, you know, a lot of people do that too. They don't, they're also avoiding conflict. Now there are also people who go to the opposite extreme. They look for a fight. There are some people who are itching for a fight. They want it to be a big, you know, knockdown drag out. They, they welcome it and sometimes they instigate it. Um, they relish the fight. There are also those that deal with it in a healthy way, because all the ways I've said so far are not healthy, are they? None of the ways I've suggested so far are healthy, but there are also people who deal with conflict in a healthy way. They won't back down from their core issues. Like they know what they believe, they have a, a, a firm uh, stand on what they believe, but they're also willing to look for common ground to resolve the conflict or whatever's going on. That's the ideal way, right? All of us, if we were you know, asked how, what's the best way to handle conflict, we'd say something along those lines, and, and we'd like to think that we do that, although oftentimes we don't, but that is the ideal. And so, our, our, and, and so knowing that that's sort of the ideal in our interpersonal relationships, what I want to look at today is how we deal with conflict in the church. Again, I think I, I discussed this back when we were doing our, um, our series on the Sermon on the Mount. This is not a sermon necessarily that this church needs to hear. This is a unified church. This has always been a unified church. This is a church that's full of love. This is a church that's full of compassion for each other. We, we, from my observations over the last almost eight years, we treat, people, we treat each other pretty good. This is a loving place. I, I feel very accepted here. I feel very loved here when I walk in this place. But at the same time, this is teaching that Paul gives to the whole church. And so it's teaching that we need to hear as well, because who knows what we're about to walk through or who, who knows what may come against us two years from now or three years from now. So this is, this is teaching that's in the Bible, and so I'm giving it to you. This is, this is part of Philippians 4. Um, and so Paul is, is talking about this concept, and, and we turn in, in chapter 4, we, we learn how to deal with conflict with fellow believers. And he's, he's, and it's men do not laugh, but he's correcting two women that are fighting. Which I think is really interesting. He's correcting two women that were hostile to each other. We don't know, we, and I'll tell you this in a second, I'm I'll completely honest with you, we don't know exactly what is going on, but, but I want to read to you chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 4, verses, verse 1 is what we were on last week. So I'm just kind of sort of, you know, to, to keep uh, continuity. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. That's where we stopped last week. I urge... Judea, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Those are the two people's names, and I butchered them, I'm sure. Judea and Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women 
who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Recall last week that Paul said we're to stand firm in the Lord. That was, his, that was kind of his uh, command that we're to stand firm. We're to work through. And then as we, I'm going to kind of give you a, 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 like a preview of what's coming. Today we're going to talk about how we're to work through our problems and live in harmony in, chat, in verses 2 and 3. The next thing that we're going to talk about is we're to maintain a joyful spirit through prayer. That's verses 4 through 7. We're to keep our minds focused on what is godly. That's verses 8 and 9. We're to learn to be content in our circumstances by trusting in the Lord. That's verses 10 through 19. All of these things are ways that we stand firm. He's going to kind of, he says stand firm, and then he sort of gives us examples, and we're going to go through those in the next few weeks, and we're going to study them in depth. But today, we're just going to look at living in harmony and living in peace and working through our problems. Even though I would say most of us in this room, we share probably about... I would guess 85 to 90 percent of our values are similar across this congregation. We've, we're, we're, we're a rural parish. Grant Parish is, is not a, a big metro city. Um, we've, we're in a, a church, so we, we kind of believe the same doctrinal things. Um, we believe we probably have the same kind of family values or concept of family values. I'd say about 85 percent of our values are similar with each other in this room. But because we're human, even though we agree on a lot of things, there's still places for conflict, and it's not always easy to live in harmony sometimes. Um, there's other things outside of us that would also try to disrupt our fellowship. There's also, this sticks up every once in a while, there's also selfishness, our own selfishness. I only got one amen. Now this next one, y'all are all going to amen, because there's also the selfishness of others. Amen, amen, come on, yeah. They're selfish, not me, right? That's the, that's the way we all kind of go, well, hallelujah. But um, there's also pressure from the world to conform to its standards instead of God's standards. And then there is the attack of our adversary, the devil, that seeks to get us to believe lies about God and, and the, the desires that God has for us and then to believe lies about other people. That's why Paul prefaces his urging to these ladies he commands us all to stand firm in the Lord. Hold your position and do not let it push you back away from the ground that you've already taken and push you into unrighteousness. And that's the heart of all these conflicts is unrighteousness. It's important to emphasize again that we stand firm in the Lord, not in our own strength. This is kind of how I closed last week. We stand firm in the Lord. You must be cultivating your walk with Jesus Christ. That, that's the base of everything that... that is ever said from this pulpit is we must be cultivating our relationship with Jesus Christ. We must becoming, we must, as we grow in, in, in our, our understanding of Jesus and as we grow in our relationship, we must become more sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. He's calling us and he's leading us and he wants to sanctify us, but I have to be sensitive and I have to follow. We can't resist temptation on our own. There's no one in this room that can resist temptation on their own, but we must rely on God's faithfulness. He will provide a path of escape. He will provide a way out. We have to be sensitive enough to find it. He's always going to provide us a way out. I have to be looking, that escape route, and, and as soon as I see it, I need to take it. We're not gonna be able to stand against the devil unless we're submitting to Jesus Christ. Point blank, uh, there's no sugarcoating that statement. You cannot stand against the devil if you're not submitting your life to Jesus. 
You're not more powerful and you're not wiser than the devil. I'm not afraid of him at all. I have Jesus Christ living inside of me. Greater is he that's in me than he's that's in the world. And it's the same thing for all of you. I'm not scared of the devil, but he is wiser than I am. And he's sneaky and he's, and he's devious. He, he's, he's out there planning 24-7. I sleep about nine hours. He, he's got more time during the day to worry about make, making me mess up than I've got to think about doing right. And he's been around for a long time. He started out as a snake and he goes about as a roaring lion at the end. So he's learning things too. You're not more powerful than he is, but the Holy Spirit that is inside of you is way more powerful than he is. If you follow God, you can resist the devil and he will flee. It's the easiest, best way I can say it. And that Holy Spirit that's in you, that will help you follow Jesus Christ. And you're not going to be able to live in harmony with other Christians if you're not wearing the full armor of God. Remember, stand firm is a military term. And then Paul goes on to describe the, the, the military. Are you girding yourself daily with truth? Are you putting on that belt of truth every day so that Satan's lies are not able to entangle you and pull you down? See, it's truth that frees you from the bondage of sin. It's truth that keeps you from falling for any of the things that the devil would try to say to us. Are you wearing the belt of truth? Do you have on the breastplate of righteousness? If not, then you're going to be surprised where your emotions will lead you. Your emotions will take you on a journey. They'll take you into ungodly pursuits, and they'll take you into selfishness. What about your feet? Are your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace? See, the devil would love to make us afraid. Fear is the enemy's freeze ray. I say that in BCR all the time. Fear is his freeze ray because he can get us afraid. We stop. Well, maybe I shouldn't volunteer for a new ministry. Or maybe I shouldn't go up to the altar. Or maybe I shouldn't stand up and raise my hands in worship. Fear is a powerful thing, and it absolutely immobilizes us. So we need our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace so that fear has no hold on us. There's also the shield of faith by which we extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. It's our faith that enables us to trust in God's character in the midst of all of our uncertainty. Even when Satan is seeking to exploit our doubts, even when Satan is seeking to, to, to exploit my, my uh, well, maybe half God said, kind of as, as, uh, as sort of as Eve did it, ha, you know, even when Satan is trying to exploit all that, then that my faith is in God's character no matter what my circumstances are. There's also the helmet of salvation which protects our brain. It protects our thinking. It protects how we perceive the world. It's a defensive armor that is our confident assurance in our eternal future with Jesus Christ. Even when Satan has smashed through all of the other defenses, we can stand firm even when those circumstances of our lives seem to be crumbling around us. When I don't know anything else, I know Jesus died for me. When I don't know another thing, when the world has got me so twisted and turned around and my emotions are ruling because my breastplate is damaged or whatever it is, I know Jesus died for me. And I know why he died for me. It was to save me. He died to save me. So what controls your mind? And finally, there's the sword of spirit, the spirit, which is the word of God. And with the Bible, we both defend ourselves and we can go on the offensive to win others to the Lord. But the sword is not going to do you any good unless you pick it up. That sword could be beautiful as can be. And if it's sitting right down here, you will not defend yourself, will you? We have to pick up our Bibles. We have to start reading them. 
we have to start getting the word, hiding it in our heart, knowing what it's saying so that we may not sin against him. That's what we've got to do with the word. The, the scripture says, 2 Timothy 2 and 15, I quote this a lot, that we would maybe workmen approved unto God who can, accurate, who can handle accurately the word of truth and we don't have to be ashamed. I've said it every time I bring the scripture up, that instead of workman, the better translation is a craftsman. That is someone who has studied the word of God to the point that they're now the master. They, are, they take pride in the work that they do because they're a craftsman of the word. Do you have on your armor? Are you standing firm in the Lord? If you don't, then you're, an, you're a target. You're walking around with a big target on your back. You will not only get into conflicts that will disrupt the harmony of the church, but you'll be the source of some of those conflicts. Therefore, stand firm in the Lord. And that brings us to these two ladies, the, the, whose names are really hard to pronounce. E and S is what I'm going to call them from now on. E and S. There's not a lot written here about E and S, but there is enough for us to come to some conclusions about them. First, we know that these two women are believers and they have been active in the church. The, in verse three, Paul specifically cites that they have shared in his struggle in the cause of the gospel. They're church members. They're ladies who have been coming to that church for a long time. They're, 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 they're card carrying members of the, the church at, the, at Philippi. He, the, the, the actual Greek translation there means that they were, Paul is calling them his teammates, is really the, the language that is used. He uses a lot of sports, we don't realize it because we're reading it in English, but in the Greek he uses lots of sports analogies, so I, I guess it's appropriate on Super Bowl Sunday to use some sports analogies because he's really calling them his teammates. And that's an idea I think that we immediately understand. Anybody here for the Chiefs? Anybody, you, we got how many? A few? Anybody here for San Francisco? I, I'm, I'm for San Francisco too. Um, and, and we understand that. Let's, let's make it easier. Any Saints fans here? Any LSU fans here? That, that's, that's a little bit easier. Texas, UT, or A&M? A&M, okay. All right, we got one A&M person here, but that's okay. Um, and we understand this concept of being teammates, and, and, and we even understand the concept of being fans in the stands, cheering, you know, screaming and hollering and, and getting loud. And, you know, a third down, and we get real, real loud. Sister Brenda, you know what I'm talking about. You get in Tiger Stadium, and the band plays that, that certain note, and the crowd knows what to do on third down. It's just what you do on third down. You get, you get ready. And, and you make it hard on the opposing team. So we, we understand all that stuff. And Paul is basically saying, ENS, you're on my team. You guys are part of my team. You're my fellow athletes. And then included in his team is a guy he's going to mention in the next verse. He says, Clement also and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So these people that he's talking about, they're workers in the church. They're not troublemakers. Let's get that from the beginning. These are not troublemakers from without. They're people inside the church. And they have a lot of relationships in the church as Paul of, uh, as Paul of Paul, Paul's team. You know, they're, they're, they're influential in the church. They, they clearly have been there for a long time. Paul knows a lot about them. And another thing that we can conclude, even though there's only three verses that are really discussing this, another thing that we can conclude is, that, is from the things that Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't correct any doctrinal error with these ladies. He doesn't say, hey, ENS, you're, you slipped from grace. Nothing like that. He doesn't say that. And, and Paul was not hesitant to correct doctrinal errors. Like, had there been a problem, he'd have fixed it. 
Paul did not shy away from that kind of stuff. He never hesitated on that. So he's not citing them as being in some great sin. He, he has, he's, not, he's not saying, you know, you guys are, you're, 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 you know, you're, you're sinners and all that. He's not saying that either. He, he frequently, throughout his letters, he frequently corrects people who are individuals who are in sin. So this is, we know by the fact that he doesn't do it here that these ladies were not in that. So Paul would have if they had been in it. So why is it so important that Paul would include just this, these two ladies' names in the middle of a, of a book to the Philippians? Why is it so important? Well, think about this. Earlier in Philippians 1 and 27, Paul talks about unity. And unity was a big deal. It was important to Paul. He tells us in that verse, he says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving for the faith of the gospel. Paul expands on this theme again in, in chapter 2, verse 2. Why not just address this issue in a general manner? Why not just say, hey, we don't like conflict in the church. You guys need to all get along. Why not deal with it in kind of the way he did in chapter 2? He talks about don't you know, do everything you do without grumbling or complaining. Why bring up this conflict between these two ladies? The reason is simply he, he's trying to give us an example. He wants our church, Bentley, to know that this happens. This sort of thing goes on everywhere there is a church. In fact, anywhere you get two people together, there's a potential for conflict, isn't it? There's no two people who agree on every single thing. It's important for us to understand that this is something that happens so that we can learn how to deal with it. Jesus had been very direct in telling his disciples that they were to love one another as he loved them and that it would be that love that, he, that we showed for each other that would show that we are disciples. So now if there's conflict, and we know that there's going to be, because Paul's told us that there is, we understand that there is going to be conflict the conflict between these two ladies is a serious threat to the witness of the church at Philippi. We're supposed to be known by our love for one another. If we're fussing and fighting, we're not Christians. Because Jesus just said in the verse I read that if we are his disciples, we'll love one another. If we're not loving one another, we're not Christians. So Paul is bringing this up for a very, very important reason. Our witness is implicated in how we handle conflict in the church. See, the Philippian church was sound in doctrine. They had no problems with the truth. Paul, throughout the entire book of Philippians, you will not find one place where he corrects them for their doctrine. That's actually a standout because in most, most books to the churches, he does correct something, but he makes no doctrinal corrections but it would do them little good if their doctrine was perfect, if they had disunity and no one could hear the sound doctrine being preached because nobody was loving one another. See, that division can destroy the church. So it was important enough for Paul to bring up this dispute between these two ladies because he wanted that church to be known for its sound doctrine and not for fussing and fighting. That's why it's in there in, in chapter four. These two women were important workers in the church and their conflict could spill over and engulf the rest of the church. It was important enough that he needed to address it so that it wouldn't spill over into the rest of the church. Why were these women in conflict? I don't know. There's nothing in the scripture that tells us. It could have been for a bunch of reasons, but I promise you whatever their reason was, it's still common to us today. 
whatever it was that got them fussing and fighting, it, 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 we still have some of it. What are some sources of conflict? Well, I'll tell you one real fast, personality. Personality conflicts. Some people are type A, some people are type B, some people are type Z. I'm type Z. <laughs> Many of us have been involved in personality clashes with people around us just because our personalities are different. We're, we're kind of in some ways not even speaking the same language when we talk to somebody whose personality is so different than us. Some people are type A and they, they're Russian and Russian and Russian. Some people are, are type B or Z and they're just really too laid back. They get upset when you're upset. That's the type Z. We, why are you even upset? Let's calm down, you know. And, and even a small irritation can become a major sore if it's not treated properly. We need to appreciate and learn from those who have different personalities than we do. Type A people, you probably do need to calm down. I'm pointing fingers this morning. You need to chillax and relax. You need to learn to just take life in stride. And us type Z people, we need to stop being so laid back. Some things are important enough to, to get up and fight over. So we got to be, you know, whatever, what, by the way, whatever personality type you have, don't take any pride in that. Don't, don't be prideful just because of that, because it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. God has given our, the same standard of holiness, whether you're type A, type B, or type Z. It doesn't matter. We have the same standard of holiness and righteous living. Our personality is a reflection of who we are so far, but it's not where we're supposed to stop. We're supposed to continue that sanctification process, following Jesus, becoming more and more like him, created in his image, and then we become that reflection of Jesus Christ. God's word is the blueprint that we must follow, and that, that structure that's being built in our personality is just where we are right now, but that blueprint is building us into something that God can use. Your personality may make some things easier for you, but, that's, but another person who has the same situation, it'll be really difficult for, and vice versa. There are some people who can handle this thing and some people who can handle that thing. Some of us will struggle with one thing and some of us will struggle with the other. But the bottom line is we need each other. And our differences in personality can be used by God to reach an, a, a lost world out there that also has different personalities. There's type A, type B, and type Z people out there too. So we need all kinds in the church. We need to learn to appreciate those differences and make our personalities begin to mesh and be useful for God instead of fighting and fussing and then we're working together and, and instead of like cars that are hitting each other and clashing. The second uh, source of conflict is a lack of love. We overreact to the failings of a brother or sister sometimes and we forget about being gracious and merciful. Sometimes we can get, somebody does us wrong and we, man, we are fast to think about, oh, my Lord, did you hear what they did? Or do you know what they did to me? And, and, and we react, and, and no love is in my response whatsoever. I'm thinking of myself. I'm thinking of my selfish things. First Peter 4 and 8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. I can forgive somebody that I love a whole lot easier than I can forgive somebody that I don't love. But the problem for us Christians is Jesus has said we're supposed to love everybody. So I should be able to forgive anybody who does me wrong because love covers that multitude of sins. We can overlook, man, if you've got somebody that's one of your favorite people, they can have all kinds of idiosyncrasies. 
They can have crazy personality quirks. They can have just weird behavior. And man, you look right past it because that's a person you love. But love is supposed to be like that with everyone that we deal with, especially inside the church. We, we, we will sometimes treat a stranger with more love than we'll treat the people that we're in the same room with. This does not mean in any way that we are to ever compromise on holiness, but rather that we should always extend grace and mercy to other people. Love is the grease that smooths out the friction between our personality types. Think of it like that. Love smooths out those rough spots that we all have with each other. Where there is a lack of love, then the friction that naturally exists can quickly spark into a fire. I need to also point out that it is that same love that often causes us to properly admonish one another. Because love doesn't mean we ignore sin, does it? Love doesn't mean we ignore sin. Rather, we're to speak the truth in love. The motive is not just to bring about a needed correction, but more importantly, it is to strive to restore the relationship that that person and, and I myself have lost because of sin or whatever has gotten in the way. Usually, it's, I mean, it's going to be sin. Those who correct but lack love become pharisaical keepers of the law. If people are just going around correcting and they don't have any love, they're just pharisaical keepers of the law. They're spiritual policemen is what they are, waiting to pounce on any rule-breaking that they see. But on the other hand, those who love but won't correct are just enablers. You're just enablers of sin, and both approaches fail if you do them by themselves. We must love and we must also correct, but when we do, we do it out of love. Another cause of, uh, of, of, of disunity is selfishness. Maybe it's the greatest cause. I, I, I can see it being the greatest cause. James 4, 1 through 4 states, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. He's calling the whole group of people. He says, you adulteresses. He's not speaking to a particular person. He's calling the whole group that he's talking to. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There are times when conflict is good and necessary. In Galatians 2 and 11, Paul corrected Peter. It, it, was, it was over something that, that he felt was a gospel imperative, and so he did it. It is necessary to stand firmly against those that would threaten the gospel message. And, and Paul and John both do this, and they, in their letters, they both do this exact same thing. 2 John 10 says, Do not receive or even give a greeting to those that come with a doctrine contrary to the Scriptures. Paul said that those who brought a different gospel were accursed in Galatians 1 and 8. Remember as well that Jesus opposed the scribes and the Pharisees. He also cast out the money changers in the temple. There are many, many issues where we must enter into conflict with those that compromise God's Word, those that would bring shame upon the message of the gospel. And churches have legitimately split over issues of doctrine. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, and 18 tells us that we must come out from amongst the heathen, the apostates, and the lawless. However, most conflicts in a church are not those. So I've painted you a really bad picture, but only to tell you most of our conflicts are not those. They're over minor issues of personal preference. How loud is the music? Where's the AC set today? 
Who's getting to sing the solo? Those are the kind of things. How can these things happen in a church? But we know they do. I mean, we know they do. Because it is too easy to succumb to the pressures of the world that is trying to conform us into its image than to conform to Jesus. And when that happens, what is important to us begins to reflect worldly values. We look at what's important to the world and we start to to pass that. It just passes through us, basically, and that becomes our values. What is important to us becomes the, the worldly concerns instead of godly ones. Our personal preferences become more important than our relationship with others, that love that we talked about just a second ago. Making sure the church is pleasing in your own eye is what becomes more important than the thoughts and the feelings of others. Could the source of conflicts between E and S have been just a simple disagreement over how we're going to decorate the table for the social we're having? Could it have been one of them wanted to sit on the front row and and got there first and the other one got mad and stormed out the back? I don't know, but I bet you it was something small because Paul's not correcting anybody's doctrine and he's not correcting anybody's sin. So we know it had to be something along those lines. In our society, we have a, we have a, a and, and I'm going to talk about music, but in a different way. In our society, musical preferences are a, a big source of conflict within the church. What I'm talking about is what music is played in the church, um, not necessarily what we listen to outside, uh, not the stuff we talk about in youth service, um, but, what we, but what kind of music we play up on the front. And, and, and what, I'm, what I mean by this is, is the real source of the music conflict and, and that kind of a war between the crowds in the church is not the, the music itself, but it's the heart attitude behind the demands. See, instead of being filled with the Spirit, resulting in speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, as Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 says, the Holy Spirit becomes quenched because people demand that the melodies that are played reflect their desires. I've said it before, I love the old stuff. I love the hymns. I, I, I really do. I know that not everyone loves the hymns. I'm okay with that. I don't have to get up here and demand, oh, we just should do nothing but the hymns. You know, I, I, I understand some people, well, I don't like the new stuff. You know, or I, whatever, I don't like this kind, I don't like that kind. I understand that we all have our personal preferences. But if the focus of the music ever becomes inward for my personal satisfaction and my personal pleasure while I'm sitting in here worshiping, then we're missing the point. We're missing the whole point. What underlies this conflict is that too many Christians equate worship with how they feel. We think it was a good worship service because we feel good at the end of it. Maybe the music was just just on point that morning. Maybe it was so it was just moving our emotions and the end result is that we judge the worship by how the music affected us. But worship is not about what you feel or what you perceive. And a great worship service should not be measured by how good you feel when it's over because it's not about you. True worship is done in spirit and in truth, John 4 and 24, which means it is about willfully giving God the honor and the praise that is due Him. Sometimes it takes work to worship. Sometimes it takes work to praise Sometimes it is not very emotionally pleasing because it means digging deep to give him worship, 
See, we bring a sacrifice of praise. We bring a sacrifice of worship when we come into the house of the Lord. It means that we dig deep to give Him something that He is due, that He's deserving, that He's worthy of. And perhaps our personal and our corporate worship in here and at home, wherever we're doing our personal worship, will improve if we will keep in mind that God is looking at our hearts all along. And He knows whether we're focusing on worshiping Him or if we're focused on ourselves and just enjoying a good tune. Do we sing to the Lord? Or do we sing to feel good? So much of modern worship has become man-centered. It's all about how we feel. But God is always here. And whether you feel that presence or not, it's your situation. It's a you question. He was here every single time these doors were open. People use this phrase, and I have used it, and I'm going to try to stop. But people will say, there'll be like this magnificent service, and, 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 and it just was, the presence of the Lord was heavy, and all this. And people will say, you know, well, God showed up and showed out. And I have used that phrase before, but I've gotten convicted of using that phrase. He's always here. He's always showing out. There's never a time where he didn't. The difference the difference is sometimes I walk out of here feeling better. But he was still given glory. His name was still edified. He was still lifted up. So I can't judge the service by how I feel afterwards because I'm always supposed to be doing exactly what I did on that service that I felt great about, is lifting him up. That's enough about that. I'll get off my hobby horse. Another thing that, that causes disunity is jealousy. James 4 points out selfishness also reveals itself in jealousy. Other people have things we don't have. The Joneses have this and the Joneses have that. And it might be a material thing or it could be an ability. I I just, I I can't sing like my cousin Keith. I can't sing like Brother John, Brother Tommy, I can't sing like you. I, I, I can't, I wish I could. Oh, I can't wait to get to heaven when I have a new body. I'm gonna have new vocal cords too. And I'm going to sing Y'all have no idea how loud I'm going to sing because I haven't been able to now, but I'm going to over there. But instead of us being content with what God has given us and praising Him for what He's given others, it becomes a source of envy and resentment, and it results in fighting and quarreling. Related to this one is our next one, pride. Pride is the opposite of that character quality that is necessary for humility. I mean, for unity in the church, which is humility. Humility regards other people as more important than me, more important than myself, and it seeks out the best interest of the other person, even at the cost of what I might want or I might think I need. It requires a personal sacrifice, and that's exactly what Jesus did for us. When he became a man and he died in our place, he showed us that perfect example of humility because he placed our interest above his Pride regards other people as as less important than ourselves, and it seeks to fulfill our personal interest, even if it costs other people things, even if it takes things out of other people's hands, and that's how the world behaves. Pride is usually a component, at least to a degree, I think, in most conflicts. We get our pride involved, don't we? Somebody says something to us, or, or a little disagreement starts, and all of a sudden, my pride gets involved. Well, that's a hard one to resolve once my pride gets involved. And all of a sudden, we demand other people change to meet our desires. Pride is hurt when someone else has something it does not, so it becomes envious. Pride is arrogant. 
when a proud man is in a position of leadership, he's going to be like the rulers of the world, and he will lord over those who are under him. At the same time, if you're a follower, a proud man will resist those who are in authority. And that resistance can be open rebellion or it can be murmuring. We talked about that previously. We, we're, supposed to be, we're, we're supposed to be like Hebrews 13 and 17 states. Obey our leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over our souls. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. This does not mean you can't disagree with church leaders. We, we don't run a, a cult at this place. Y'all know that. Anybody can go to Brother Bruce when services. You can come to me if you disagree with something I say. We, we, we're not like a, a dictatorship here. But it, it means that we must always be respectful and humble with each other. We, and unless somebody gets up here and starts preaching a doctrine different than the doctrine of Jesus Christ, we should always be humble and respectful of one another. If we have disagreements, then we, we tell them. We don't tell everybody in the world. In addition, we need to humbly and carefully listen to the answers that the people give us to their questions or concerns and compare them to Scripture, not just our own opinions. Pride, whether it's in, the, in a leader or in the church, can disrupt the unity and fellowship. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We need to make sure that we are people who are humble ourselves under the hand of God, regardless of what position we serve in in this church. While we do not know the exact reason for the conflict between E and S, we do know Paul's uh, description and his uh, instructions for how they are to resolve it. Thank the Lord he gave us, he didn't stop with no conflict. He actually also gave us some good ways to deal with it. First, Paul directly appealed to them to live in harmony in the Lord. The verb is I urge, and it is repeated twice, once to each lady, I urge you and I urge you. The idea of living in harmony is literally to be in the same mind, and, and there's a qualifier. It's not just somebody's mind, it's the mind of the Lord. True Christian unity is founded on our first believing in Jesus Christ and then submitting ourselves to believe what he has taught us. Christian unity can only occur when that one mind, the mind of Jesus, exists in us. This Christian, this, develop, this Christian unity develops as we are transformed by the renewing of our mind through the scriptures as we become more and more like Jesus. So the first action in resolving conflicts is to call the parties who are in contention to dwell on the mind of the Lord. Get in this mind which was in Christ Jesus and submit to that. If we actively did that, we would probably avoid 99% of the conflict because 99% of the stuff that we argue about would be resolved if we were all had his mind about the whole thing. If we actively did that, we could avoid all conflict. If we will do it as soon as the conflict starts, we could quickly resolve any conflict. And that's what Paul does in verse 3. He asks somebody, and he calls him true comrade or companion to come and help them. The word here, it's an, it's an when I started studying this, it's really fascinating. The word here is suzogos, which doesn't mean a whole lot. But some scholars say that it may not, he may not have been talking about workmen. So he actually may have been talking about a person named suzogos. And he may have been calling on this guy that he had worked with before and that he trusts to come and help these women work through the issue. There are times when we sometimes need a neutral party, isn't it? Sometimes we need a neutral party to help us, in part because our own emotions get involved or we get worked up or we get stubborn and we lose sight of the bigger picture. We can make a mountain out of a molehill and respond to a fellow Christian as though they were our enemy. Anybody ever done it? I have. I've done it. The enemy is Satan, though. 
The enemy is not other people, not other Christians. Even when they have done something to us that we don't like or something that has hurt us, they're not the enemy. Having someone else there that is godly, that can help us with conflict and, and sort of sort through the issues and, and kind of get grounded, that is a proper biblical response. And as believers, we need to be proactive in the lives of each other. When Jesus said in, in Matthew 5 and 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. He was talking about those that are willing to get in the middle of a conflict in order to stop it and help it get resolved. I'm not talking about getting in the middle of it to make it worse. I, I promise you that's not what this scripture is talking about. And, 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 and a person who's willing to do this in the biblical way, there's risk. Because when you get out in the middle, what happens? You get hit from both sides, right? You just get hit from both sides. And, and I'm also not calling us to become a bunch of busybodies, going around looking for conflict and, and, and all that kind of stuff. It takes a mature believer to undertake this role. We, must, we, must, we don't want to get sucked in and then we pick a side. That would be a bad solution also. We, 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 what we're trying to do is be humble and work out the conflict. Jesus even tells us in Matthew 5, 23 and 24 regarding our worship of God that we need to reconcile with our brother before we walk through the doors of that church. Resolve your conflict. If you have aught against your brother, go resolve it before you come into the house of the Lord. We are to strive to be at peace with all men as much as it depends on us. That means if I have something that I can go get forgiveness for, I go. That doesn't mean he has to forgive me, and I can still worship God if he doesn't forgive me. But I've done my part. I've done all I can do. So I'm to do that under Romans 12 and 18. Jesus told us to love our enemies, so no matter how badly we've been treated, we are still to try to resolve it. If we cannot work it out ourselves, then we're to get help from someone who is godly and not involved in the conflict. And when we see others in a conflict, we seek to help or we get help instead of egging it all on. If you see there's conflict, don't make it worse. If you see there's two people who are, who are fussing and fighting, don't make it worse. The cause of Jesus Christ is damaged by unresolved conflict in the church. That's the thrust of everything that Paul has tried to say in, in these scriptures. Is it, The church in Philippi had wonderful doctrine. He never corrects the Philippian, uh, the Philippian church for their doctrine. He loves their doctrine. They're preaching the truth. But this little bitty conflict could be a danger to the church because all of a sudden people won't see the church loving each other and it will damage the witness of the church. We need to make sure we're part of the solution instead of the problem, and in that way we bring glory to his name. Do you love, this, this is where the rubber meets the road. It's the hard question. Do you love your fellow Christians? It can be hard some days. It can be hard. Do you love Jesus Christ? That's an easier question. It's sometimes real easy to, to love Jesus, but the, the people are sometimes hard to deal with. I want to leave you with a scripture, Ephesians 4, 2, and 3, and then I'm going to pray. Then, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Every single word in that scripture calms me down. I don't care how up here I was with my emotions or how angry or whatever was going on. If I read that scripture, every single word in that scripture brings me back 
to where God wants me to be, to a place of humility, to a place of love, where God can begin to work, and then the conflicts in the church, we resolve them, and we're a, we're a shining light. We're a beacon for people who are hurting in the world. They don't, they've got conflict outside. They've got plenty of conflict wherever they work, where, at their home. They've got conflict. They don't need it here. We need to be a place of safety and hope. Can we stand? And I'm going to pray for us, and then we're dismissed. I invite you all to stay for our 11:15 service, which will start in 14 minutes. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for your presence that we feel, God. We thank you for your love and your grace, God. You're so good to us, Lord. I pray that you would help us to keep in mind that we're to be humble before each other, God. We're to, we're to think of others before we even think of ourselves, God. When conflict does arise, God, we're, we're even then to think of others before we think of ourselves. We're to approach each other humbly and full of love, God. We're, we're all each other's neighbors, God, and, and so we're supposed to love each other and help us work through conflict in that spirit of love, Lord. Lead us and direct us. Help people come into our lives. Show people direction to, to walk into situations that may look like they're a little dangerous but, but they're willing to walk in and, and mediate between parties, God. I, I thank you for people who are willing to do that, God. Raise us up to be people like that, God, and help us to resolve conflicts so that our overarching goal is to reach a lost and dying world for the cause of Jesus Christ. I pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen.